All right, we are going to be in Genesis chapter 40. We may even and probably will get into Genesis 41. And um, we've been studying the life of Joseph. And Joseph it just seems to be in the, on the wrong end of just about everything. Um, but we, we're going to find in these two chapters that he goes from the pit to the pinnacle because he is finally going to, uh, through the Lord's providential hand, he is finally going to be positioned in the place that God has ordained for him all along, a place from which he will be able to save the nation Israel. So we pick it up in verse 40, I'm sorry, chapter 40, verse 1. And there we read, it came to pass after these things, and after these things is referring to now Joseph is imprisoned because Potiphar's wife unjustly accuses him of something he didn't do, that he was trying to um, assault her, shall we say. And so he finds himself in prison. Um, and then we read, it came to pass after these things that the butler and the baker of king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. So he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. That would be Potiphar, who was the master of, of Joseph even before he was in prison. Captain of the guard in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them so they were in custody for a while. Now, we see here that uh, it, it, the day comes where somehow the royal butler and the royal baker did something to offend or to annoy the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and he has them in prison. Now, the butler was the officer in the king's court who was responsible for his drink, his wine. And so he would be the one that would bring the cup um, bring the cup to Pharaoh and, and presumably he'd be the one to make sure that whatever was in that cup was not poisonous. And the baker was in charge of the Pharaoh's food. So these are the two officers that are pretty much taking care of whatever it is that the Pharaoh is consuming. And when we read that the king was offended with them, we might, it doesn't tell us here, but we might suspect that maybe there was a plot to assassinate uh, the king and and the assassination through poisoning might have been suspected. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't explain that to us, but it, it is kind of curious that the two individuals that are responsible for that which Pharaoh would consume are the ones that were imprisoned. Um, and so um, we shouldn't lose sight of the overarching reason why those two individuals are there, because ultimately it's through circumstances surrounding them that Joseph ultimately is going to be freed from prison, but we're coming to that. And so we read here that the captain of the guard, again, that would be Potiphar, the one in whose household Joseph had previously been the steward until he was arrested and imprisoned. But we see here that the captain of the guard has put Joseph in charge of the prison. We saw that at the end of the last chapter. And so now he's going to take these rather highly ranking officials and put them under the care under the supervision of Joseph while they're in the prison. And again, I think this favorable treatment um, shows that Potiphar never really bought the accusations that his wife made against Joseph. I think it was kind of being politically correct and also keeping peace at home to put him in that prison for a while uh, because he knew the character of Joseph 
he knew that the Lord was with Joseph. And, and we see further indication of that because now these two individuals that Pharaoh himself has put into the prison um, are under the care of Joseph. And the interesting thing is what we read there in verse 4, uh, the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he, that is Joseph, served them. Interesting comment about what, how Joseph related to these individuals. He didn't view them as fellow prisoners. He didn't lord over them as he might have, being that he is kind of put in charge of them. Instead, he served them. And this becomes characteristic of the leadership style that Joseph exhibits as he will go through his, his newfound position that we're going to see by the end of chapter 41, that Joseph was really a, a servant model of leadership kind of guy. And in fact, there are so many ways in which Joseph portrays the type that is what we talked about two weeks ago in our Bible study, or maybe it was this past week, Jesus style. He, he exhibits the Jesus style. Jesus said this in Matthew 20, verses 26 and 8. Uh, he's speaking about how he makes a contrast in that chapter about how Gentiles treat people when they're in a position of leadership. They lord over them, they oppress them, whatnot. And then Jesus says in Matthew 20, he says, yet it shall not be so among you, that is you who are disciples of Christ who might be in positions of leadership, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the model that Jesus created when he came to earth as a man to live among us. This is the model that he shows us today, even today, that he sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes constantly on our behalf. He ever liveth, the scripture says, to make intercession for us. And so uh, this, is, this is kind of the model that Joseph shows in the way he goes about the things that he does. This is why he's found favor everywhere he's been since he was hauled out of that pit and sold to um, traders to bring him to Egypt. So we pick it up in verse 5 and we read, Then the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, had a dream, both of them, each man's dream in one night and each man's dream with his own interpretation. And Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them and he saw that they were sad. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody of his Lord's house saying, why do you look so sad today? And they said to him, we each have had a dream and there is no interpretation of it. So Joseph said to them, do not, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. Now, the thing that stands out here is that here are these two individuals who uh, have been in prison, accused of some sort of crime, and now they're in prison, and Joseph notices on, on the day when he encounters them that they look extra sad. I'm sure they had enough sadness about the fact that they're in prison anyway. I mean, uh, we encounter a lot of people at Caswell and uh, Dan River that look sad, and it's probably because they've been in that place for a long time. But they looked especially sad. There was something that was bothering their, them there. Now, Joseph himself had reason to be sad. Uh, he, he's been unjustly treated uh, almost uh, his whole life, okay? He's now, first he was unjustly 
cast into a hole by his brothers. They were going to leave him there. Then he was hauled out of that hole so that his brothers could enrich themselves. Then he was sold as a slave. Then he was unjustly accused by the wife of his master. Then he was put in prison. And typically when people have this cascade of bad news, they're not thinking about anybody else. We almost can't blame them. They are so beaten down and demoralized by their own string of bad fortune that typically their first thought or maybe even their second, third, fourth, and fifth thoughts is not for the welfare of anybody else. We might be inclined if we were Joseph to look at those two guys and say, yeah, join the club. You know, life is terrible and, uh, you know, get over it kind of thing. But this isn't the guy that we're encountering here. Um, he's, He's got a servant's heart. He sees these men cast down. He wants to know why. They share with him that they have these troubling dreams and they don't know what they mean. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've had my share of dreams where I didn't know what they meant. And, um, but usually they're more hilarious than like depressing, uh, which is concerning in itself. <laughs> but but he, he, he brings something to their notice that I think is very sage on Joseph's part. He says, do not interpretations belong to God. And then he says, tell them to me, please. Now, this leads me to believe that Joseph still believed that God was going to make good on the dreams that he had had some years earlier. Remember the dreams that he had where they, both of the two dreams that are accounted for in the scripture basically give the message that Joseph one day will rule over people, including his own brothers and his parents, and, and of course, he was mocked for that. Uh, his brothers held him in derision for that. And then they ultimately tried to do away with him for that. But Joseph still believed that the interpretation of those dreams was of the Lord. And that interpretation had been given to him. And it had been made obvious to his father, Jacob. And so Joseph has a sense that the Lord has something here that he's trying to convey and Daniel is the key to unlocking the message. And so he asked these men, you know, tell them to me, please. Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph. Now, you're probably all wondering right here, the butler did it. The butler always did it. But we're going to see that's, that's heresy. Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, behold, in my dream, a vine was before me. And in the vine were three branches. It was as though it, it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. Now, it's pretty amazing. We don't get any sense of a passage of time here. So it might have been that Joseph literally got the interpretation as soon as he heard the dream, we don't know that, but it's possible. This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. And by the way, the specificity which, with, with which that Joseph is interpreting these dreams is, it, it stands apart from a lot of what people claim when they give prophecies or when they so-called fortune tell. You know, very often the kinds of things that you hear are things that cannot really be independently or empirically verified. 
But Joseph here is talking about a specific time frame, three days. In three days, everybody's going to know whether his interpretation is true or not. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. So what Joseph sees in this interpretation of this dream is a full exoneration of the butler. The butler didn't do it. Booyah. Hooray for all butlers. Uh, and and the, the time frame is specific. The actual uh, activity that follows those three days is specific. There is no question about what Joseph is saying here, and therefore there is no possibility that the result could be fudged. Um, and we know that, uh, that these, these ideas or, or these, these prescriptions, if you are stating them as prophecy, every single thing that a true prophet would say has to be true. In fact, later, much later, when the Mosaic law would come to pass, it would specifically state in there that a false prophet had, would be doing that under penalty of death. And so this is, this is a very big deal. Um, we might also understand what Joseph said when he said that uh, these interpretations belong to God. Um, as we make our way through scripture, we see many instances where God indeed does speak to human beings through dreams and visions. Um, the famous encounter when Miriam and... Uh, and uh, Aaron were pushing back against Moses, and they were kind of being uh, insurrectionists, to use the word du jour. And, uh, and God brings them together, the three of them, and he, he basically does a, a smackdown on Miriam and Aaron. And he speaks about uh, how he has communicated with other prophets in the past. In Numbers 12, 6, he says, Hear now my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. He goes on to say, but Moses, being the meekest, the most humble man on the face of the earth, and somebody who is so aligned with God's will, he says, to him I speak face to face. But we know, for example, John, uh, the apostle John, the Patmos vision, which basically is codified in the book of Revelation. This was something given in visions and dreams and whatnot. Um, Joel chapter 2, verse 28, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Oh, that's why I'm having all those dreams. Your young men shall see visions. I mean, the Lord has used these things in the past and, uh, and continues to do so. But we should always be careful. I have encountered people in my time in ministry, and, I, and perhaps you have as well, who have had dreams that coincidentally happen to be about things that they want to happen. And so they equate what they take as the interpretation of that dream as affirmation of God saying that their plans are good to go. And this is where the danger comes because um, as we read in scripture, for in the multitude of dreams and many words, there's also vanity, it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. There's a lot of danger in the way people can receive dreams. And there's a lot of influences, demonic influences that could be upon people that can cause dreams to occur. And I think the litmus test, the lens through which we look at anything, whether it's a vision, a dream, advice, 
whatever is the word of God. If you ever had a dream that, that was seemingly giving you the okay to do something that's clearly against the, the, the dictates of scripture, you know it's, it's false, you know it's wrong. And so dreams are a vehicle that God has used in the past, um, are, are things that God finds useful at certain times in his dealing with people. Uh, for example, I continue to hear in our connection with Elam, our, our ministry partner that uh, deals with the people of Iran and Farsi-speaking peoples around Iran, there are countless stories of people in Iran who have had visions and dreams of either what they would believe to be Jesus himself or somebody speaking on behalf of Jesus. And they come out of those dreams and they accept the Lord. And then they encounter people from outside of Iran and and they identify themselves as Christians. They say, really, how did you get saved? And they tell them, I had this dream. And of course, immediately there's suspicion like, okay, this doesn't sound good. Okay, tell me what you heard in the dream. Tell me what you what was presented to you in the dream. And what they relate is spot on with Christian orthodoxy. And so, I mean, it's very hard to get the gospel into the country of Iran. It's happening. People are dying for that cause. But apparently in some of these places, I've heard similar accounts in China, places where it's very hard to get the gospel in. I mean, I'm not recommending this as something that we should just rest on and say we don't really need to support foreign missions because the Lord's got this. He'll just ramp up the dream generator and everything will be fine. No, but this, these are real accounts that people have experienced. Uh, I think it was in the movie that our partner, um, both Kareem from Advancing Native Missions, speaking about what was going on in some of the Middle East, and then also Joe Connor when he came and he showed that movie about people getting saved in Iran. In both of those two instances, they were relating this going on. So certainly God can use dreams and visions to speak to people, but we should always hold them up and look at them through the lens of scripture to know uh, whether or not the dream is coming from the right place. Um, so let's see. So he, back to our text, he gives him the interpretation of the dream. It's full exoneration. Um, and then in verse 14, Joseph tells him, but remember me when it is well with you and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this place. Get me out of this house. And this, you know, you might look at that and say, well, is this Joseph kind of losing faith in God's hand to save him and not at all i mean sometimes people can get too binary on uh well it 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 can only be of the lord if i just sit back and let this big hand from heaven take me out of my trial and put me in the right place not so god expects he's created us as human beings with intellect with will with with uh various aptitudes he expects us to be working towards the outcome that we seek, and if it's an outcome that's also in line with God's will, he'll be there to help us through that. And so Joseph is merely using a resource that has now been presented to him, a man that he has just helped, who is in three days going to be out of prison, and Joseph is simply saying, look, when you get out of here, would you please kind of put in a good word for me to Pharaoh? 
For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews. By the way, that's a very important little comment there because he identifies the land of Canaan, not as the land of Canaan, but the land of the Hebrews because he believes the promise that was first given to Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. And also I have done nothing here that they should put me in the, in the dungeon. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I also was in my dream and there were three white baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh. And the birds ate them out of the baskets on my head. I'm just gonna stop there and mention that usually when you see birds in scripture, it's just not good. Uh, in some cases, they're just downright a symbology of sin and, and darkness and whatever. And that's going to be the case here. Verse 18, so Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head. <laughs> Notice when he was talking to the, to the butler, it was, he was going to lift up your head, but here he's going to lift it off, lift off your head and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat your flesh from you. Now, it's bad enough when someone is killed in that time. But when your body is left to be carrion for animals, that is the most disrespectful way that someone could die, is to have their body not even buried, not prepared properly, etc. So when he tells them that the birds will be eating your flesh, he's basically saying that, that whatever this crime was, that caused the two of you to be put in this prison, it's going to be on your head and your head's going to be off of you and you're going to be food for the birds. Now it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, surprise, surprise, that he made a feast for all his servants and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. Then he restored the chief butler to his butlership again and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So here we find uh, Joseph uh, once again dealt a bad hand. He helped out the butler. He, he gave him confidence of what was going to happen. He interpreted the dream that was so troubling him. And yet the butler did not remember Joseph in that moment. He was probably so relieved and so caught up in all the pomp and circumstance of Pharaoh's birthday that he just completely forgot about this guy uh, rotting away in the prison. But, verse 1 of chapter 41, then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. Now, <coughs> looking at this dream, no matter what you think, whether you eat cows or not. <laughs> That's a troubling dream, okay? Ugly cows coming out of the water, eating these good cows. Um, Pharaoh would probably have awakened in a start, like, what was that? He slept and dreamed a second time, and suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. 
Then behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprung up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plumps and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was not, no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. And, you know, I, I, I would almost be uh, inclined to say that dreams that the Lord would send and would, um, would be important messages that he wants the right people to understand uh, because it, it has a lot to do with the way the Lord is, is guiding the affairs of human beings, that they would be dreams or messages that would confound those who do not accept or believe in the God of the Bible. And this is true uh, in a lot of contexts. A lot of smart people who actually study scripture but have purposed in their heart to reject the supernatural existence of an all-powerful created being, creative being rather, um, that they can look at the scripture till they're blue in the face and they will not hear nor receive the message. And, and, it, and it, it, it boggles my mind, and yet it doesn't, that, that some very learned men who started their career as being uh, seminary trained, um, went to all the right schools, even pastored churches, that they would reach a point where they would completely discount the truth of Scripture. And they would make things up, literally, that are not in the word of God, and yet they would claim that they are in the word of God. And so I think, I think the Lord purposes that people who, who would have hardened hearts towards him, he gives them over to that hardness, and he makes it impossible for them to see or to hear. And so he doesn't allow for these magicians and these people who practice occultic arts to, to have an insight into what this dream is actually saying. Verse 9, then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults this day. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker, we each had a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man, he interpreted according to his own dream. Now, here the, the, the butler is realizing that he failed to fulfill what may have actually been a promise that he made to Joseph to tell the Pharaoh that, hey, there's this guy in the prison. He seems to have... Uh, the hand of God upon him. He's able to interpret dreams. And I'm sure that Pharaoh, even before he had the dreams that we see here in our text, he would have found that valuable. Um, and so the butler is, is actually kind of repenting a little bit and saying, oh, I remember now. And uh, the words he used there, um, he says, I remember my faults this day. So he, he knows he was wrong to not bring up Joseph before... Um, before the Pharaoh. 
And it came to pass, just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office and he hanged him. He hanged the baker. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. And they brought him quickly out of the dungeon and he shaved, changed his clothing and came to Pharaoh. Now this is interesting because we saw here right in the beginning, verse one of chapter 41, that it's now been two years. It's been two years since Joseph interpreted the dreams and these men went to their destinies, one to be hanged, the other to be restored to his position. And, and we could think that, goodness, uh, what a waste of Joseph's two years. What a, what a, uh, a hard uh, injustice was done to him. And these are the times when we have to look at things to the extent that we can. It's not easy because he's God and we're not. But to look at the situation from God's perspective. God has known since before Joseph ever was born on the earth that he is going to be the second most powerful man in Egypt, which at that time perhaps meant he was the second most powerful man in the world. And Joseph obviously had many uh, remarkable, commendable attributes. First of all, we know that he's one of the few men in Scripture that's described as being handsome. He, he was pleasing to look at. That always counts for something, sometimes too much. Um, and he was wise, and he was a person who had a heart for people. And so we might say that, goodness, uh, God could have got him into action a lot sooner than this. And we could say that about a lot of people. I mean, we could look at Chuck Smith, for example. Um, Chuck Smith did not really get the Calvary movement going until, what was he, late 40s, 50s? I mean, he was not, in, he, he was not like this young firebrand that was taking over the world. He was a man who had gone a long way in ministry and had pretty much, the world would look at his ministry up until Calvary Chapel days and say that he was toiling away in obscurity. Um, and yet, what was happening is, I believe, the same thing that's happening here. You can, have all the, you can have all of the ability in the world, but you're not ready to serve the Lord until you have the right character. And very often, trials, frustrations, toiling in obscurity is God's way of chiseling out enough of your interior so that he can fill that with himself. And however that long that takes, he knows exactly how long that takes. And Joseph, for all of his wonderful qualities, he may just have had a little bit more pride that needed to be in the mix that the Lord needed to carve out of him before he would be able to then put him in the position where he's about to run the world. And I think this is something we all have to look at as we consider our own position in Christ and what our lives mean relative to the overall cause of Christ. You know, because sometimes we can be very down on ourselves, like, you know, what am I really doing here? What have I really done? What have I really contributed? And we should never uh, look past those moments when we can actually see the, hand, the providential hand of the Lord guiding our lives in a way to make us more like Jesus. And for some men or women, God might be preparing them for a ministry post that is going to be impactful for years and affect thousands, maybe millions of people. 
And for other people, he may spend 55 years of your life to prepare you for one moment, for one thing that is going to matter for a person or persons, and that's God's purpose for your life. And we never know which one it is. And, you know, I, I hear the story uh, many times before that Billy Graham, if he were alive, he would tell you that the person who was most influential in his, in his coming to Christ and being committed, not only coming to Christ, being committed to Christ, was a Sunday school teacher that he had, you know, when he was a young man. No one's ever heard of that guy. I don't even know if anyone knows his name. Billy did. But that guy poured into this one man who then poured into millions. And, and I think this is true in a lot of cases. So we should never presume on the work of the Lord. Lord, it's taken real long. Or Lord, this doesn't seem like it's ever going to happen. Or Lord, what's really going on here? Why, why haven't you put me in the game? Or anything like that. Because God uses these, these days, months, years, decades maybe to prepare the vessel for the purpose for which he's created it. So verse 14, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon and he shaved, changed his clothing and came to Pharaoh. I'd love to see what he looked like just before he came to Pharaoh. But, you know, it's funny because when the Lord says, okay, the time is now, everything happens quickly. You know, it's taken a couple of years, but now it's going to happen like one day. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had, I've had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. You see what he's done here? You see what the Lord prepared in this young man? Here is a time when Joseph could have aggrandized himself to the max. Pharaoh needs something. Joseph knows he's going to have the answer. And he could very easily have said, well, you know, your honor, <laughs> You know, Pharaoh, uh, this is kind of a wheelhouse. And, uh, you know, we could do great things together. He doesn't say that. As far as Joseph knows, he's going to interpret the dream and then go back to prison. Joseph answers Pharaoh saying, not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. And there's nothing more troubling than seeing a mere human being steal God's glory. There's nothing worse that any of us could do than to, to, than to plaster ourselves over a work of God. It is, it is it, it's hard to watch. So Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it's not me, God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I stood on the bank of the river. Suddenly seven cows came up out of the river, fine looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them poor and very ugly and gaunt, such ugliness as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. When they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning. So I awoke. Also, I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good. Then behold, seven heads withered and thin and blighted by the east wind sprang up after them and the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians, but there was not, no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. 
Once again, the specificity of Joseph's interpretation will leave no room for fudging, for kind of saying, well, yeah, that's kind of what I said, or anything like that. He's giving very specific details here. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. You ever notice that there are certain things in scripture that are repeated multiple times? And you'd say, well, if God said it once, shouldn't that be good enough? Yeah, but God knows us. Remember, he made us. And he knows how dense we can be. He knows how sometimes we could be prone to disbelief if we see something that seems rather incredible. And God will use repetition as emphasis just like we do. You know, maybe you still have that little uh, loop tape playing in your head when you used to discipline your kids and you notice how you'd, you know, use all three of their names like a serial killer and you'd repeat over and over what they did or what they shouldn't do and don't go out there, don't go out there, don't go out there. Well, the Lord kind of does that with us, and um, he gives Pharaoh this dream, and it's important that he gives Pharaoh both sides of the dream, because you could imagine that if they wheeled into the seven years of plenty without knowing the rest of the story, they would very quickly fall into the fallacy of these times are different and good times will never end. In my own lifetime, I've seen this movie before. When, when we were in the early 2000s, 2001, 2002, we had just come through a period of time known as the dot-com boom. The dot-com boom was simply when the internet all of a sudden became pervasive and it became something that people finally understood could be monetized and it could allow a lot of money to be made for a relatively small investment and pretty much any company that came to be that put .com in their title would all of a sudden have valuations of billions of dollars. Pets.com was a perfect example of that. And a lot of these companies didn't even, barely had uh, an office uh, and, and they were being valued at billions of dollars. And of course, there was then what was known as the .com bust. And this is when all those companies went through the floor and it just about wrecked our economy. Eight years later, same thing, the real estate boom. These times are different. This will never end. Ooh, it ended badly. And then, of course, we're seeing, I think, played out right before us now, kind of the cryptocurrency bust. And it's because people do not have an understanding of delayed gratification, of uh, understanding that there are cycles to, a lot, to any market, and there are cycles to any uh, kind of resource like grain, and there are cycles to weather. And so if the times are good now, you got to be thinking ahead about when the times won't be good. And so the Lord was gracious to show them both sides because they're about to wheel into unprecedented prosperity. And this is going to be amazing. And they're going to be 
rolling in, in, in wealth, at least from the standpoint of food. And so the, um, the idea is, but you need to know what's coming. So Joseph being wise, being a good administrator and truly caring for the people says this, he doesn't just offer, here's what's gonna happen and the ultimate end of it's gonna be really bad. He now offers a solution, advice. He says in verse 33, now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning wise man. He doesn't say now pick me, but he does say select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in, se in the seven plentiful years. Now, it was believed at this time that Pharaoh had a nationwide tax of 10% that 10% of all of what was produced in the land would be given back to the Pharaoh. Um, but now Joseph's proposal is double that, make it 20% so that um, they will reap this benefit in the plentiful years to put away for the lean years. 30, verse 35, and let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall serve as a reserve for the land for seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. I have to just stop here and just say, so often when something calamitous happens in the world, like seven years of famine, the kind of famine that people die by the millions is about to happen. And people stomp their foot and they say, you know, how could a just and loving God allow that to happen? Well, in this case, first of all, God is recognizing that, that the world is a fallen place, and in a fallen place, bad things happen to good and bad people alike, um, and God does not intervene um, providentially uh, to change the nature of things, but he, allow, he works in the midst of things. In this case, he's going to work in the midst of a famine that's going to drive his brothers to Egypt looking for food. And this will ultimately not only bring the family back together, but it will preserve them so that the, the line of the seed, the highway of the seed, as it were, will continue to Messiah. And so God works in the midst of these things and his purposes are perfect. Um, so Joseph, so verse 37, so the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the spirit of God? See, a pagan is seeing the spirit of God in Joseph. And that, by the way, should be the heart's desire of every one of us, that the way in which we conduct our lives would be so Christ-like that people would just blurt out, the hand of God is on this person. The spirit of God lives in this person. You mean the God you don't believe in? What, whatever, but something's different about this guy, you know? And uh, <coughs> then Pharaoh said to Joseph, inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you, you think? You should be over my house and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. Wow, that happened really fast. You don't think the Lord wasn't pulling all those strings, but he was pulling them two years be before this. He was pulling them many years before that. He was pulling them when Joseph was tossed in a pit 
And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in a garment of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot, which he had. And they cried out before him, bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. That's quite a lot of power. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath Paonia, and he gave him a wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So make note of this. Joseph is getting an Egyptian wife who is going to produce two sons here. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields that surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, who Ashenoth, uh, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended and the seven years of famine began to come as Joseph had said. The famine was in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, people cried to Pharaoh for the bread. Then Pharaoh said to all of the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. The famine was over all the face of the earth and Joseph opened up the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the lands. Now, um, this shows just how dramatic this prediction that the Lord had given to Pharaoh in a dream that Joseph interpreted was. This was a crisis in all of the world. And the man who is on the point to literally save Egypt, but also to save Israel, is Joseph. And as I mentioned a little bit ago, that years, because Joseph was 17 when he was tossed in the pit. Now he's 30, so 13 years have transpired. And most of that 13 years has been Joseph being accused or being punished for things he didn't do. And now he is basically a ruler of the known world. And that time that it took from, from being tossed in the pit to being in this position was that time of God shaping Joseph's life to be Christ-like. And the parallels between Joseph's life and Jesus's life are, are, are striking. Joseph was a shepherd. Jesus was a shepherd in the greatest of senses. Loved by the father, hated by his brothers, prophesied his coming glory. I mean, Jesus prophesied his coming glory. Joseph saw his in a dream. Endured unjust punishment from his brothers. Sentenced to the pit. Handed over to Gentiles. 
regarded as dead but raised out of the pit, went to Egypt as Jesus did, falsely accused, made no defense, endured unjust punishment from Gentiles, associated with two other criminals, the butler and the baker. One is pardoned and one is not. And if you remember Jesus on the cross, one of those thieves on the cross or criminals on the cross, Jesus ultimately said, today you'll see me in paradise. The other one never repented. Um, he was shown to have divine wisdom, recognized by others as having the spirit of God in him, glorified after his humility, um, given a Gentile bride. I mean, think about that. Was 30 years old when he began his life's work. Was blessed the world with bread. I mean, the, the parallels are just striking. He's a type of Christ. He's not Christ, but he's somebody that God brought up in the history of the Jewish people like he did with so many things that he brought into their lives to foreshadow Christ. And his example, I mean, we're reading it today so many thousands of years after this actually happened. But I, I hope, I mean, the, the value of, of holding this in our hands and reading about this man's life is that he was an ordinary man, an ordinary human being like us. He was somebody that had his faults. And yet, because of his willingness, God was, was shaping him to do great and mighty things for the cause of, of ultimately the cause of Christ. And I'd like to believe that if we are willing, if we uh, surrender our, our pride and, and uh, our own agenda to live in the agenda that is God's, God's will, God's way, God's word, he can do astounding things with us as well. He wants to. And, and for some of us, um, he, he will if we surrender, if we just let go of all of these things that we think matter so much to us and let God do what he will through us. It's an exciting way to live. And, um, and it's really the only worthy thing to live for. So, all right, well, we're gonna leave it there. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, God, for this word. We thank you, God, for the example that is Joseph's life. And we pray, Father, that as we examine his life and we see the things he endured to ultimately be used by you, Lord, it gives us some, some comfort and assurance, Lord, that whatever we're going through, Lord, you can see us through it, Lord. You can walk with us through those trials. And ultimately, you can use the things, the lessons we learn in those trials to enable us to do great things for your kingdom, Lord. And so, Lord, my prayer tonight is that you would use us for your glory and use us up. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you.